Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is Jess MacDonald. Jess was one of the first recruits on the Metropolitan Police's direct entry detective scheme. Launched in 2017 to address a shortage of detectives, this scheme was not without its critics. Successful applicants had a direct route into a career as a detective without first undertaking a role in uniform policing. When Jess first pitched an idea for a book, she wanted to bridge the gap between people's fascination with true crime and the reality of what it is like to be a detective. But she ended up leaving the job she loved and writing about the challenges she found, both in the Met and the justice system. Jess believes that transparency can only be bracingly positive, a sentiment that was shared by Baroness Casey when she conducted a year-long review of the Met following the murder of Sarah Everard by a serving officer. Given that Jess worked on cases of domestic abuse, this interview may include content that some find triggering, but it's a fascinating insight into the life and work of a Met detective. Jess, you were considering a career as a lawyer when you had your light bulb moment. Can you tell me about the detective who inspired you? Of course. I was very late in life doing work experience. I think I was... How late is late in life? I want to say I was 30. Basically, was shadowing a barrister, a criminal barrister. She was defence in a sexual assault case against a child. And this female detective was the officer in the case. And I just had no idea really how detectives in the case offer, well, gather every single piece of evidence for the prosecution, for the defence. And I just thought, wow, this is, this could be an entry point. And she had a conversation with me and actually said, well, you know, there's a new direct entry detective scheme. They're launching it in the Met in you know, a couple of weeks. 
And it was one of those really opportune moments where everything seems to come together at once and you think, okay, I'm completely priced out of becoming a barrister. It's about 30 grand just to do the conversion alone, yet alone, the kind of like loss of income whilst you're training and everything. And I just thought, this is this is it. If I could if I could do her job, it would be incredible. I can make a difference. You know, the case was amazing and it actually prevented this little girl from further grooming and abuse and her siblings. And it just felt so vital. So yeah, she was very impressive. And I thought, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. And presumably you hadn't considered a role in the police force before this moment. <laughs> I had considered it, but actually just felt it very quickly because I think the uniform route is far more confrontational as a role. I mean, there's a whole mix of many things. I'm not trying to pigeonhole it, but I'm quite slight build. The idea of banging on someone's door, walking into a situation, it was just too much. So the secondary officer is the investigator. It's much more, I mean, it is much more desk-based, obviously the interviewing side of things. And you do make arrests and you do, you're still a police officer, but it's, it's a very, very different role and much more suited to... To, I guess, my skill set. You said that your application fell like a moonshot. You did it without hesitation. What attracted you to the job? What qualities did you think you could bring? Well, I think very naively, the group of us who, because it was a brand new scheme and we were actually, my cohort, the first 100 recruits onto the scheme, it was all very mysterious. I mean, we, we know what we know from watching the news and a lot of TV shows. But actually, the reality, until very recently, hasn't been there for all to see. So it felt quite mysterious. It felt like going for a role at MI5. But yeah, I suppose in answer to your question, I, it's a bit of a tweet response, but I'm a people person. I'm fascinated by people. I'm very curious. And I've got this sense of justice that's meaningful to me. And I kind of wanted to, I wanted to make a difference in a positive way. I mean, it does all sound very cliche, but I was fascinated as well. Like what, you know, what is it detectives do? Like, you know, you're dealing with some of the worst things people can do to one another. You know, I kind of, I was interested in it all and wanted, yeah, I wanted to play my part. From 2,800 applications, you found yourself back in a classroom with 15 other new recruits. What kind of jobs had they come from? They'd done a really good job recruiting. So they wanted people with life experience and careers outside of policing because typically, I suppose, people join the police when they're quite young, maybe like 17, 18, and go right the way through. We had former lawyers. We had uh, teachers, project managers. I mean, I'd worked for an advertising agency and done marketing and behaviour change campaigns for the Department of Health. What else did we have? A guy who'd worked at Lush, you know, the <laughs> shop that's the bath bombs. Um, military, we had quite a few um, ex-military people as well. It was a really mixed bag, like all walks, and everyone was so different. They were generally not that young. I mean, as in, they weren't new grads. And I think the way the schemes changed, my understanding is it's much more of a graduate thing, but I'd say the age range was more 30s to 50s. Mm, so Interesting. Diverse. Not as much as maybe one would kind of hope in London, but gender-wise, it was completely... I think, actually, we had more more women than men, which is unusual, but it was, it was a good mix. You've described your training as abstract, like learning to drive a car without getting in a car, <laughs> which is really devastating. Did you feel at a disadvantage bypassing the on-the-beat learning stage? Did you wish you'd actually trodden the... On the pavement. <laughs> we had, I mean, we we had glimpses of it. We actually went through the very traditional 
officer training at Hendon. It's no longer residential, but we it's classroom training. So it's it is like going back to school. The thing is, you know, you learn all these things and it's a lot of criminal law, as you can imagine. And you're learning all police procedure, so arrests and stop and search. And then they almost bolted on the investigators bit um, at that early stage. And then we had to sit a national exam. National Investigators Exam, which is a massive criminal law exam that all detectives have to take. But it was all role plays in like, you know, a classroom in a safe environment, maybe with an actor. It just, you know, most of us hadn't even set foot into a police station. So then we did go and do a week of experience. And actually, one girl in the group dropped out after that, mm-hmm. you know, and not a lot was said about it. And she, I don't think, wanted to, I don't think she wanted to say exactly why. She mm-hmm. did, She wanted everyone to find for themselves and she didn't want to kind of yeah, influence that so much. But once we were then put into the actual police station, I was in East London, Tower Hamlets. It was just, it's very hard to prepare someone theoretically for the reality of what Mm. that looks like. But it's rather intriguing because you were the first being trained by people who'd never trained such a group of people. You know, the training was good. We knew how to do the job, but of course... It's almost simple things like, you know, which forms to use. The muscle memory just wasn't there. And a lot of the interactions as well, like when you make your first arrest, I I write about that in my book. It feels so bizarre taking someone's liberty. And actually, I'd envisaged it would be a case I'd, you know, ground away at. And I'd have a strong feeling like, yeah, this arrest needed to be done. But actually, when we were thrown in, we were in like a small group where we had to tick off skills you know we had to do a couple of arrests we had to do a couple of stop and searches we had to do a couple of interviews and then once we'd done those we were then just in with the pool of detectives but the first arrest I just had a name an offense I just had to go on the faith of this I had it written on a small piece of paper in my hands you know and we're banging on this guy's door and I'm thinking and it was you know violent offense no one really couldn't prepare you for how that feels to Mm. to kind of have that interaction with another person and to potentially cuff a person you know, it's a, it's a huge thing, loss of liberty. You were thrown in at the deep end, in a sense. We re- yeah, we were. We did have, like, a, mm. an incubation period, which was which was really good when we first arrived in our police stations. So we didn't go as a 15. We were kind of spread all over different boroughs. So I was with a few others. And we were incubated for that time. And that was good. But it was very much, you'll learn by doing. So we were practising on real people. You know, I almost, like, wouldn't have seen an interview before I'd done one myself. It was that kind of thing. And you're very aware this is someone's case. And even if it's a lowish level offence, it's still someone, you know, you have to get all the legal side of an interview exactly right. If I don't do my introduction correctly, then that can be thrown out and that could be your evidence gone. So it, it, it did feel very pressured. We kept having these false summits. We finished training school. We were like, oh, yeah, we've nailed it. We've passed all our tests. We've done all our role plays. And then we got into the police station. We thought, OK, no, 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 we've not finished yet. <laughs> and, you know, and, but then being thrown in to the safeguarding unit, which is where I went, that was just, I mean, it's just a baptism of fire. This happened over a period of what, weeks? The back to school training was for about five months. Uh-huh. All the theoretical side. So we understood all the crimes and we understood points to prove. We understood all that. But then the incubation period was only a couple of months, basically, until we'd passed this, this national exam, which runs four times a year. We were kind of fully operational, I'd say, 
by eight months from like starting, mm. I would mostly be in custody, you know, interviewing mm, mm, mm. or, um, you know, I suppose interviewing witnesses as well and, you know, just gathering all the evidence. That's what I do. But I think when you see TV shows, there's always a partnership, isn't there? You know, there's always the green new detective and the old kind of grizzled one and that, you know, they work together. But you're, it's a very, very solitary role. You know, I've never ever interviewed with another person, or maybe once, but it's very much you get your case file and that's on you. That's your responsibility now until that goes to Crown Courts. You know, that could be your case for two years. They keep coming every day. The crime doesn't stop or wait. It's much like the NHS. You know, you just you have to deal with what comes in. It sounds a terribly threadbare operation. I mm, mean, yeah, it is. What was the everyday reality of your workload? It definitely feels that way. It's too much. It's too... You've got more work that can can ever be done. And then it's this awful feeling of failing people, you know? You you have this huge workload, but you don't really get to choose how you prioritise because every day you're thinking, oh, I've got to get onto this, I've got to do this. And you've got proactive stuff, reactive stuff. But then it's like, here you go, this is... We've got a prisoner, he's yours. It's grueling it's a grind but this is incredible because it's at the very core of crime prevention i mean if you can't get things right at this stage mm. then we're sunk yeah it, i mean they're huge issues right but it really does need more investment in policing for starters you do need more people to deal with this amount of crime what was happening inside you as all this was happening i mean were you becoming less interested or more interested in in what you thought you were about to do. Oh, I was absolutely hooked. I, oh, you were? Yeah, I loved it. And, the you know, the pace of it, the intensity of it, it was, it was incredible, but I was still very early in it. The issues I started to come up against, I had random little moments where I thought, that's very odd, you know, or like, why are they doing things like that? You know, I do question things a bit, and straight away I realised that, attitude is not welcome you know like why would we do it like this that's really long-winded or that's really ineffective and everyone will be like oh you know just don't with the questions it's just how it's done here that's how it's done here what the police were doing it seems to me they were sort of taking a risk to try and bring in normal people oh, i don't know i don't I, it, it wasn't very welcome uh-huh. and i think if you put a load of people who are yeah, wait, what, what do we want these people for they've got phds and things no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it was more just you know you've got that fresh perspective haven't you and yeah. you've got that you know, we've worked in other industries, in other workplaces. So you look at certain things and you think, whoa, that's off the mark. Mm. Whereas if you've done it nothing else since you were 17, then maybe you don't see that or realise. Yeah. And you're much more malleable. And we were kind of a bit too old and too worldly to be institutionalised into this is the way it should work. But it's interesting. Bit insubordinate. That's probably what it was all about anyway. It was to try and loosen up what they were doing? Well, I think it was because there was a massive recruitment crisis because it was so extreme and there was this gap and people in uniform weren't wanting to take on the detective role because in the past you'd you'd maybe be a PC for four years, but if you wanted to go into an investigative role, which a lot of people don't because it is very different, you have this enormous workload and there's not enough people to get the job done and internally everyone knows that. I think there was an, a shortage of 800 detectives the year we started, and it was crazy in there, in the safeguarding department. There were, there were just not enough 
people, it was the roll on effects from all the budget cuts mm. to policing that had led to this crisis. And yeah, so I think they need to draft people in from outside. And, you know, I, I don't like to be too cynical, but I do feel, you know, we were a little bit, maybe our very first group, cannon fodder, you know, we were just mm. to plug a gap. And our welfare wasn't considered a huge priority. I mean, this is in the context of domestic abuse-related crimes doubling over 10 years, but the number of officers investigating not increasing at the same rate. I've likened it in the book to fighting a raging fire with a tiny, mm. like, handheld child's water pistol, you know, I think because everyone was so in the thick of it, mm. they hadn't really devised, they needed, you know, when you're that stretched, you then can't invest in like new talent and new people. So there weren't people to kind of like support us and help us through. Colleagues were good, but certain people, and it did tend to be uh, sergeants and, mm, you know, mm. managers. People who'd been at it for a bit. Yeah, a bit longer. You know, people, colleagues you know, they were like, oh, this is an extra pair of hands, another bum on seat to deal with the issue. But other people almost wanted to prove that having direct entrance detectives couldn't work. And they saw us as other. And, you know, it's like, oh, I had to go through this rite of passage. So why shouldn't you? And we never had someone so junior taken on such a workload. Normally, you just don't. Your first two years, you're a probationer and you, you wouldn't take a case to Crown Court, yet alone 20, 30, 40 of them. So we were a weird entity and some people didn't like it. It was luck of the draw whether you had a supportive sergeant or not, and I sadly didn't. But I had other friends who had excellent sergeants who, again, were really supportive, really nurturing. But the way that rank system works, if someone above you decides, nah, we don't want you or your type here or whatever it is, it's very, very difficult. As a probationary detective, you were assigned to the Community Safeguarding Unit. Can you tell me what they actually do. So that's basically where a victim and suspect know each other. Mm -hmm. So it tends to be mostly domestic abuse and violence and rape, child abuse, predominantly crimes against women. It's like really serious stuff. And it's rife. I don't think people realise because it's not reported in the news all that often, you know. But women being killed by their partner, that's two women a week in the UK and Wales. Mm. And domestic abuse, it just isn't something that we read about. I had no idea the extent of domestic abuse before I actually worked in that department. I had no idea. It's the biggest crime area the police or the Met deal with, domestic abuse. It's it's huge. And I have some real issues with the criminal justice system around the CPS and the charging standards for these crimes against women, because I don't think they're adequate. Mm. Um, and so things aren't being prosecuted properly. So... We're interviewing and we're doing this and, you know, people are investigating rapes and re-traumatising victims. And a lot of things where there's, there's a lot of evidence and there's crime, they're not being taken forward by the CPS. They're not being prosecuted. But pause for a moment. You've now been in the system for nine no, months. Yeah, this, is, this was my first posting. My, but that is still pretty it, shocking. It's dangerous because it is a very, very high... This is known as the highest kind of risk, highest mm -hmm. volume area mm -hmm. of policing. You know, internally, there's a lot of people who would say that's the hardest area of policing because there's so much at stake. Um, it's murder prevention, essentially, because with domestic abuse, for instance, it's pattern of behaviour. So you watch a case get worse and worse and worse. And often, we our hands are quite tied, again, by the CPS, and we can't really help in a meaningful way. It's very hard to get these cases prosecuted and to actually make a difference and to, 
you know, I feel quite strongly now having done the job about rehabilitation mm-hmm. for perpetrators of domestic abuse because it is a pattern of behaviour. So yes, you can lock them away for a bit, but if you don't actually, you're just treating the symptom, aren't you? If you don't actually treat the issue which mm-hmm. is causing the abuse and at least try to rehabilitate them, then they they are so harmful to almost everyone that they encounter, like their family members, their, part, their future partners. Very big challenge. Yeah, really challenging. And a huge exposure to trauma as well, mm. which I think, again, quite naively. I, did, I definitely came into this very naively. <laughs> you know, very optimistic, um, as is my way. But, you know, I hadn't really thought about how the trauma would impact mm. constant exposure, not just with my cases, but sitting in an open plan office and... You know, we're dealing, we're talking about people doing the worst things to each other, seeing probably more trauma than your average person would see. And what sort of support years. was there? Well, not a lot day to day. There was support there when someone broke, almost too late. There was support there, and that was good support, and they could help people. But there wasn't support to stop you from breaking in the first place. So, for instance, one one story, kind of, I I don't think this is actually in the book, but. A friend of mine was on a case. It was indecent images of children. Mm. And she was told, well, you need to review the phones. And she said, well, I don't know how that's going to affect me. And there was no support or no training or no preparation. You know, she was a mum herself. And you think, well, that could be really, that could do massive psychological damage, whatever it is that she was about to see. And you just, I know with the National Crime Agency, people have an awful lot of training and support counsellors for instance if you're counselling people who have have trauma you have an awful lot of support yourself you know it's it's very strange you know it's it's almost like this denial that the trauma is even there it's just your job get on with it how often was mental health ever discussed it wasn't spoken about all that much there's nothing proactive around that maybe it's changed now there's a blue light line for people in crisis that you can call but it's very much there is help there but it you know, if you think of like a mental health continuum and everyone's kind of sliding around on it a bit, there's nothing really to when you start to slip to to help or just regular counselling or even one-on-one sessions to say, how are you doing? Is anything bothering you? Or, you know, it, there's none of that. It's if you do break as an officer, then there will be the support there. So I, I got counselling, but it was only at the point that it was, you know, I, I was depressed. I was, I wasn't functioning properly. And if there had been a proper support mechanism, do you think there was enough commitment that would have meant that you were still a police officer now? I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think the, the mental health side of it wasn't, it was an issue for me. And because I hadn't ever been depressed before, mm. I was quite bad at recognising the symptoms. And I, I think I had... Um, a view that being depressed meant you just felt really sad all the time and not the reality that I experienced anyway, that you just feel nothing, you know, just empty. And I, I didn't really recognise it for, for what it was. So again, I think now having been through that, I would never let it get that bad again. I'd, I'd pick up on the signs. I'd like to think anyway. Um, but the, the, the reason I, I left mainly was because of wanting so badly to help someone and sitting opposite someone and taking a statement with domestic abuse, you know, you can be taking a statement about 
five years of an abusive relationship, you know, it's the horror of that and what that person's been through. And I could be the first person they were potentially telling because they believed I could help and they could tell I wanted to. To then take all that, all that evidence and to be told, no, there's not enough here or that's, or, you know, no further action. And then I have to go back to that person and say, oh, sorry, you know, when there is evidence, but it's just not you know, it's not the case that the CPS want it to be. Of course, at this time, Baroness Casey, she acknowledged the issues in what was wrong with the uh, CPS, but she placed more importance on changes in policing. Yeah, and I think in terms of the standards and the culture, for me, everything in Baroness Casey's review, so much of it is, is resonating with my own personal experience. I personally think that... Whilst the Met are sorting out the recommendations, you know, enacting Baroness Casey's blueprint for how to move forward, I also think there needs to be a review done into the CPS and the charging standards, because at the moment, the police work is frustrated in the criminal justice system. You know, the police issues aside, there are issues around standards and culture. There's no denying that in, in the Met, probably in policing more broadly. That's one thing. But then the break in the criminal justice system, which is around crimes against women not being prosecuted properly, they're just not, you know, 1.2% of rapes prosecuted. That's, you know, it's essentially legal. That needs to be tackled because otherwise the police work is so frustrated and you're just re-traumatising victims. You can be seen to be doing something, but it's ineffective. It's a complete waste of everyone's time without having that fixed. And it frustrates me immensely that, you know, I, I keep shouting about it. And I think Mark Rowley's actually said, mm. yeah, this is an issue. And it, and it really is. And that's what I felt was the, was the most frustrating thing when I was an officer, that it's just not aligned. You know, the, the mess are there to protect people, to keep people safe and to help victims access justice. The Crown Prosecution Service wants a realistic prospect of conviction. They want a win count. And I get it, there's not endless pots of money to spend on these things, but the crimes against women, particularly rape, don't fit their charging standards that they've come up with. So you just can't say, oh, sorry, your crime that you're experiencing doesn't work with our system. Like, no, you have to change the system. You have to change how it's done. I'm not sure how it's a huge problem, but someone's got to look at it and work on it, you know, soon. But at this stage, as you were beginning to find out what on earth was going on and, yeah. and, and what the job entailed and all the rest, you still wanted to do the job. But mm-hmm. your experience of bullying finally led you to actually resign. 25% of the women surveyed for the Casey report had also experienced bullying. That's a huge number of people. And the processes for grievances and complaints were described as systematically failing to pick up the pieces. Were you failed? In that, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was relieved is a strange word to use, but when I read that stat in the Casey Review, I mean, it's horrific. That's what quarter of, of women and officers in the mats say that they've been bullied. I mean, that's that's so high. It's incredible. Um, but it is such an insidious thing. But there was a relief there because I didn't know. I didn't know that. And I thought it was just me. And with bullying, it's a really horrible thing. And I do think it's quite widespread. I think it's the last of these insidious things that everyone kind of knows goes on. And, you know, people do turn a bit of a blind eye around it. And the people on the receiving end very much feel it. But it's, it's quite hard to speak out about it because 
it's a thousand tiny little things you know it's very personal and a lot of the other people might work with that same person and be like no you know that's or oh, maybe they didn't mean it in that way but you know everyone knows when they when it's happening to them and I've been really shocked and really encouraged actually by how many people have come forward and messaged me directly and say your experience it could mm. you know it's so parallel to mine I could have written your book you know and they've said thank you you know like I appreciate you raising awareness around this and the majority of that is around the bullying um and bullies are very often bullies because they themselves have been failed yeah I mean that's the thing and you don't know why they're doing it Mm -hmm. and it it does tend to be I think an issue on the front line more than higher up in the Met you know the organization almost isn't a pyramid shape it's kind of very fat here and then it goes up you know almost like a a spike so I think sometimes when people hear about these bullies and bad apples and they read the case review they think of this like high level corruption Mm -hmm. but it's not and it's there because of the lack of attention to it by the authorities. Yeah. I think Baroness Casey, a line really resonated. She said, um, speaking up isn't welcome. Mm. It's just not, you know, because I did. I reported, it was two men, it was two sergeants, and I reported them internally. And there was a lot of lip service and a lot of, oh, bullying's not tolerated, but nothing was done. Like, to this day, those two men do not have a black mark against their name. Do you think an anonymous reporting system could help prevent this kind of behaviour being repeated yes i think this is a really really good idea so um, i'm amazed it doesn't exist (laughs) so am i and you think guys come on you've got thousands of detectives there you should be able to find these people Mm. um and people who aren't stupid they must understand that this is the problem yeah but i think people are so scared of because you're viewed as a troublemaker you know if speaking up isn't taken seriously and people aren't empowered to do so you know, when I spoke out, I thought, okay, well, I'm committing career suicide, but I've kind of got no choice. And that's honestly how it felt. And I said that in one of the letters that I wrote, you know, I took it really high. I just thought, I've got nothing to lose here. So I went to the um, commander, my borough commander. I I, I thought, I'm just going to escalate this thing and see what happens because I can't carry on like this. The bullying was getting worse. But I I think with, um, you know, if you look at Black Lives Matter, if you look like me too, these movements where suddenly everyone's speaking out and saying, this is an issue, this is an issue. If you had that within the Met, like, you know, a thousand reports, it paints a better picture and people feel empowered by the fact it's not just you versus me. Mm. And it's often like a David and Goliath kind of battle because it tends to be someone who assumes they have more authority, who bullies. It's a power crime, right? It's a power kind of abuse. So the idea of you just one-on-one going against this person who's already trying to paint a picture of, you know, you being useless. You know, in in an organisation where there's a culture of silence, it's just nothing's ever going to happen mm, there. Mm. Whereas if you had really quick and easy to just make a report and just say, look, this person's behaviours made me feel uncomfortable, they'd be able to find the bullies and bad apples almost overnight, you know, if they empowered everyone to do that. You know, an officer might be very competent, but if they are mistreating colleagues mm. and potentially the public... It doesn't matter how skilled you are. If you can't cheat others with basic respect, you cannot be doing that role, especially where you've got power to abuse, more power than most. Uh, you know, a friend of mine, she actually was filmed in the shower by an officer in police accommodation. Luckily, there was a witness, there was another guy that, who was sharing the accommodation and that's gone through Crown Court and this guy's been 
been convicted now and is no longer a police officer, but he was serving, that took two years to get that case to, mm. to Crown Court, and he was suspended on full pay for the entirety of that time. But on paper, he was exemplary, but he wasn't, you know? And so I think it's going to have to get murky before it gets cleaner, you know? There's, there is work to do to actually proactively find these people, and they, that, that's not an impossible task. The Casey report was commissioned because of the murder of Sarah Everard. Do you think that the Met is doing enough to prevent bad apples going unchecked and abusing positions of power? I mean, that phrase, bad apples, is one that's been used by the Met. Baroness Casey said that they're trying to put these crimes in the past and blame individuals rather than pausing for genuine reflection on systemic issues. Do you agree? I do, yeah, I do, because I do think there's this denial... I think I think the issue is the majority of police officers are are brilliant the majority but these bad apples are so dangerous they're so oh, malignant and it, it's horrible but th- the thing is the issue is there's this complicity because I feel like if you know who the dodgy people are you're almost complicit in not saying anything that roots them out I feel like there's a really bad there's just this lack of proactivity. It's very much, oh, well, we've not heard anything more. And it's like, well, you need to actively look for it. You need to tell people to come forward. You know there's a, you know 25% of women being bullied in the Met. Mm-hmm. There are some issues here. You need to empower, as an organisation, people to come forward and speak out, not just carry on with this, oh, well, that's all we've heard of. You know, look for it. You're detectives. That's what you do for a living. But, but Mark Rowley is, I want to believe what he says, and he, he does seem very intent on cleaning up the mat. But really, the information has to come from the front line because everyone on the front line knows who the dodgy individuals are. How many of your original class are still working as detectives? Four. <laughs> ah, out of? Well, my original class was 15. Wow. But the vast majority left within the first, I'd say 18 months. It was just too much. Any private enterprise operation with those sort of statistics would either close itself down and start <laughs> again or make a very radical change. It definitely needs a radical change. Did the Met seek feedback from your class? I mean, and have they made changes to the training scheme? Usually when you leave the Met, you have an exit interview. Mm-hmm. And I know that some of my friends, when they left, they were very vocal about, you know, issues and things like, you know, the reason they were leaving, because they felt so passionately, you know, they dedicated all this time, they really wanted this to work, and for whatever reason, it just couldn't. I didn't have an exit interview. I don't know why. Um, obviously, I had made these allegations of bullying, so I think they, I think nothing was more was wanted from me so I do definitely agree with what Baroness Casey said like it's this it's kind of this denial you know like the fact that there are bad apples in the organization others don't want to be tarred with that same brush also that their hands are tied at the end of the day if the government don't give the police enough money to get the job done properly that's really hard and also within the justice system you know if there's breaks later down I do think the police have become quite quite a scapegoat for like you know all the things that are going wrong with criminal justice and and it's not that's not fair but in terms of the standards and the culture that is an issue for the it, it's so extraordinary because law and order is such a trumpet call 
by politicians. Yeah. And yet, when you look at it, you find they're doing nothing about it. Yeah. That in actual fact, there's some terrible rot in the system, which you've exposed, mm -hmm. and others too. Baroness Casey, yeah, more than I anyone. Yeah, I mean, Baroness Casey, has, it's incredible but, what but she's done. nothing has been done. I Well, they are supposedly doing stuff now. Um, I actually applied to be on the... Sadiq Khan has commissioned like a London policing board mm -hmm. to hold the Mets to account for these changes like called for in the Casey review. And I applied to be on that board. Well, I, I didn't get you, asked to an interview, which I, I was a bit disappointed about. Come on, I've dedicated about 10 years to this on the front line and writing the book. And anyway, um, so, you know, I, I really want to believe that it's not just stuff's being done to look like it's being done. I really want to believe that Mark Rowley is very serious about ha, ha, Have you sent the Met your, your book? Um, I haven't. I do might believe be they worth, have read it. <laughs> might be worth sending to Sir Mark Rowley himself. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe writing him a letter. How do you feel about your detective life now? It was... I, I loved it. I hated it. It completely broke me. You know, it was a it was a whole mix of things, but it you know it, it is and it can be an incredible job. You know, if you can actually help people who are dealing with these awful crimes, and if you can help someone get justice, and if you can make a difference, and you, you can make a meaningful change, then that's amazing, and it's like one of the most vital things you can do. And I I don't think I'll ever have a job like it. Really, it was, you know, it was incredibly interesting, but there were just too many. Too many barriers. And in the end, I found it really hard to quit. But I had to do it for my own health and well-being, essentially. It was just taking such a negative toll on me, you know, with the bullying, with the burnout, the hopelessness of, like, trying to help people and not being able to get it through because of the system as it was. You know, like, people in a broken system get broken, and that's happening to all police officers. And, you know, the NHS, we think of, you know, as heroes and the police, because of some individuals, currently much more villainous. But actually, the vast majority, they are heroes and they're doing such a tough job. And I hope that my book has shone some light around, yeah, the issues. You know, I'm scathing about the issues. I have no time for that. You know, I want that to be addressed. But also, I hope people realise from reading it just how tough it actually is. I mean, if you suddenly were asked... To, to put the Met right. It's a big what, job. What's Mark the key? Mark Rowley's got a big job. <laughs> what is the key? Um, I think a relatively quick win is around improving the standard and culture. You know, I want names. All anonymous, it's not going to come back. It's not. You're not going to lose your job. You're, the bullying's not going to get worse because it's going to be mishandled and passed to the person who is bullying you. They should be actively investigating, like really proactively, really urgently to get to the bottom of who who are these dodgy officers and then get them out. I think Mark Rowley has spoken in an interview about how, how difficult it is for him to actually get rid of these people as well. But I think he means business. That you know, This is the impression I get. Um, and I think that would be the first thing. I think every police force should be doing this. The same way, actually, I think in the NHS after Shipman and the review that followed that... They had a complete zero tolerance, an actual zero tolerance around bullying. And mm. they have a lot better stuff in place now as a result of that. And I think they need to have a really tight system. I think they need to be like, right, this is going to get ugly and there's going to be a lot that comes out. 
but that's the only way to get that fresh start and for the good officers to just be unencumbered by these people who are destroying the reputation and their reputations as well by proxy it's it's hot it's 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 nasty business how optimistic are you that things will improve and if they did would you ever consider returning? <laughs> uh, I um, I am optimistic for for the Mets improving. It has to, and it ha- it has to, and I think people can see the extent of some of the issues now. And I think that that scrutiny, you know, the Casey review is balanced and it's fair, and it's a you know, it's it's a brilliant piece of work. And there's pressure now for things to get better. Would I go back? I would love to go back. I don't know if they'd have me. Thank you so very much for talking Thank with you, us. Thank you, John. That was the author and former Met detective, Jess MacDonald. Jess's book is titled No Comment, What I Wish I'd Known About Becoming a Detective. And as always, there's a link in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'm now taking a short break, but Snowcast will return in September, and until then, there are lots of episodes to catch up on. So please, subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now.